0: Okay, ready? You want to give me a cue or something? Dana, you're recording. This is Dana Thomas, and you're listening to The Green Dream, a podcast about how to green up your life by Wondercast Studio. Climate change is bearing down on us like a mighty hurricane, and it's scary as hell, but it doesn't have to be. I'm Dana Thomas, a leading voice in the sustainable fashion movement. On The Green Dream, I welcome global experts, creators, and change makers from politics, business, and the arts for dynamic conversations on how you can green up your life. The Green Dream is the podcast of hope. This episode is sponsored by Another Tomorrow, a women's fashion brand that redefines luxury with a commitment to ethics, sustainability, and transparency, from farm to fabric to atelier. Find Another Tomorrow on its website, anothertomorrow.co, at its flagship boutique, 384 Bleecker Street in New York City, and at select stores. The wonderful Oliver Jeffers kicks off our first episode. Jeffers is a children's author and illustrator, and I know you'll enjoy hearing his thoughts as much as I did. But before we get to my conversation with him, I wanted to share a little bit about myself so you could understand a bit more about who I am and why I decided to create this new podcast, The Green Dream. Quite simply, because we need to know more about climate change. As a journalist, I've been reporting and writing about climate for several years, for the New York Times, for British Vogue, where I'm the European Sustainability Editor, and in my book, Fashionopolis, The Price of Fast Fashion and the Future of Clothes, which looks at how fashion impacts the planet and humanity. Doing this work, I learned about how climate change has touched every aspect of our lives. At times, it feels scary. Some things we read or hear make it sound like a climate apocalypse is upon us and there is nothing we can do. The reality is that is not true at all. There are all sorts of things we can do as individuals and I thought I would share this message of hope and offer tips on how you can green up your life. So I'll get to all that, but first let me tell you a bit about who I am and how I arrived here today with you. I began my career at the Washington Post in the style section under the legendary editor Ben Bradley. And I really learned to be not just a reporter, but a writer and that every word mattered and that we could really touch people with our words. So I've been a journalist ever since, now it's 34 years. Washingtonian who moved to Paris for love. I married a Frenchman 30 years ago this year, on the same day as it happens that the Obamas got married. So every time they celebrate a big anniversary, I'm celebrating a big anniversary. I'm hoping for the 50th, they'll send us a note saying congratulations, because I'm going to send them one. I've always seen myself as a general assignment feature writer that requires good reporting, as all good journalism does. But I got pulled into fashion when the fashion editor of the Washington Post heard about my prior life as a fashion model in Paris and Milan when I was a teenager. I worked as a fashion model during my teen years to earn money to pay for college. And at 21, I quit with a passion, with a hunger to become a journalist. And I enrolled in American University in Washington studying journalism with this aim to get a job at the Washington Post, which I did while I was still in college. I landed my first job in the newsroom when I was still a senior at American University. It was the most entry-level job you could have. I was a copy aide, sorting mail, answering phones, taking phone messages, because this was before voicemail, and pushing a cart around delivering FedEx packages and newspapers to all the different editors. There's a great scene in the movie of The Post where you see a kid pushing around a cart delivering things to the editors. That was me. And fashion editor Nina Hyde needed a new assistant for the summer. And she heard that there was a girl up on the national desk who had been a model in Paris and Milan and spoke French. And she said, get me that girl. And so there I was, thinking that modeling had been this thing that I did in order to get to where I wanted to be, which was a journalist at the Washington Post, and that I'd put it in a box on the shelf, and it would just stay up there, done, like that part of my life was finished. And then I pulled it back down when I sat down next to Nina at her desk. It suddenly occurred to me that these two could actually work together, that journalism and modeling somehow could inform each other. That that information and that experience that I had in Paris and Milan was actually useful in journalism. I went to an event that evening with her. I helped her cover it, where Calvin Klein was being honored. And it was the first time he had done anything publicly since he had gotten out of rehab. And I watched Nina move her table assignment so she was next to him with her notebook the entire dinner. He was trapped. And I watched her work the room and get quotes from everybody. And I said, she's a real reporter. It just happens to be about fashion. I can do that. I know how to do that. I was taking classes on missiles and and warheads because it was still the Cold War. And I said, I don't need to learn all that. I already know about fashion. This is easy. And so that was my path. And I still wrote about arts and culture. And when I moved to Paris, I was always writing features about the French, about arts and culture. But my bureau chief at Newsweek magazine put me on the beat of fashion because he knew I had this experience And because fashion was in this transition from small family companies to major global corporations in the 1990s, I tracked that transition and became not just somebody writing about hemlines and heel heights, but about the business of fashion and the politics of fashion and the impact of fashion on all of our lives, on the planet and humanity. And so there we are. Here we are. The Green Dream is not a fashion podcast because I am not a fashion writer. I like to say that I am a general assignment feature writer, but I am also a social anthropologist. And one of the ways that we study humanity is by how we dress and how we present ourselves to each other. But no, this is not a fashion podcast. It's about humanity and the planet. It's about you and me and it's about the future and it's about hope. Climate change is incredibly terrifying, but then isn't everything? Life is terrifying. I mean, how do you get through the heavy stuff of life? Bit by bit, step by step, little by little, by doing this thing and then that thing, and then suddenly it's all come together. And I feel like that's how we have to tackle climate change. You know, we can't stop climate by saying we are gonna pass some global law that makes everybody stop doing something, but it's by each of us doing our own little thing and through community and all of our individual efforts kind of sewed together like a patchwork quilt. And so that's what I hope to do with this podcast is to help you understand that you do have power and that you can change the world. You can make it a better place. Just having a think even about making a better or a more conscious decision about how we go about our daily lives that is greener, green up our lives. We're going to meet really interesting, engaging, hilarious people from all walks of life. Some of them will be from the fashion industry, like the fashion designer Catherine Hamnett, who was a climate warrior before we knew there was such a thing, trying to turn her company into a sustainable company back in 1989. You know, 30 years she's been at this. And then we're gonna talk to Hannah Elliott, who is the automobile beat writer at Bloomberg Businessweek. Because we keep seeing more and more about electric cars, but like, what's the deal with electric cars? And are we all going to have them? And is this the solution? And is it more than a Prius? And why are they all so ugly? And we're going to have Oliver Jeffers, the children's book author who tackles really scary issues like climate change, but through very charming, beautiful drawings and simple words that can charm a four-year-old and the reader to the four-year-old. And Eva Orner, the director of Burning, a documentary about the Australian fires that are known as the Black Summer two years ago and destroyed millions and millions of acres of land and killed hundreds of thousands of animals and Caused birth defects and health problems, and most ecologists and environmentalists and activists in Australia said could have been avoided had the government not pursued short-sighted policy such as promoting coal mining and not worrying about the environment and the drought that was coming. So there's going to be some serious topics. There'll be light topics. You'll come away from this feeling empowered. That's my goal. I want you all to know that we have the power to make the world a better place if we put our minds to it. And that's why I call this the podcast of hope. If you're enjoying this conversation, you'll love my sister podcast on the Wondercast Network, Fashion Conversations with Bronwyn Cosgrave. Fashion Conversations is fashion's equivalent to Inside the Actor's Studio, an in-depth interview podcast with fashion and luxury's leading creators that explores their craft and creative process as well as their personal journeys. Find Fashion Conversations wherever you get your podcasts. My guest today on The Green Dream is Oliver Jeffers. He's a Northern Irish artist and an award-winning author of children's books, including Here We Are, Notes for Living on Planet Earth, which is a number one New York Times bestseller published by HarperCollins. There's also a short film based on the book from Apple TV+, which is narrated by the one and only Meryl Streep. The Chicago Tribune described Here We Are as a user's guide to being alive and to live on Earth. And the New York Times deemed Jeffers the master in capturing the joy in our differences. I met Jeffers at the TED Countdown climate conference in Edinburgh last fall where I joined several other attendees in painting a mural that Jeffers had designed. Then last fall, I ran into him in the Bloomberg Green Pavilion at COP26. Jeffers was there to mount two monumental art installations about planet Earth. That's not the coolest news about him though, not at all. In January, Jeffers was named an MBE or member of the Order of the British Empire on the Queen's New Year's honors list for his service to the arts. When I interviewed Jeffers from a recording studio in the heart of Soho, London, he was at home in Belfast. Jeffers, his wife, and their two young children normally live in Brooklyn, but they've been in Belfast since the outbreak of the pandemic. Oliver Jeffers, welcome to The Green Dream.
1: Thank you very much.
0: Congratulations on your MBE. Did you know it was coming?
1: No, I did not. Um, I got a phone call. Uh, they had sent a letter, but to the wrong address. And so I got a voice message from the Treasury department. So I immediately thought that something was wrong, like I'd filed my taxes incorrectly. So that was <laughs> a pleasant surprise. <laughs> <laughs> Firstly, that it wasn't that, but um, the notion of it again was shocking and, and very flattering. So much of the art that I do is just kind of sort of quietly ploddling along, doing its own thing. And I think, you know, trying to encourage people to To be better, to do better. And and there's no real metric for success or measurement for that. So this is an accolade. Recognizing the efforts, it it certainly was energizing and I was extremely grateful for it.
0: And also when we're artists or creators working at home in a home studio, we do get a bit of bunker fever where we just sort of feel like we're doing our own thing at our own pace. And we forget that we're actually touching a lot of people, don't we?
1: Yeah, completely. It's, It's quite unnerving. I mean, I don't know if you've had to do any Zoom talks or anything like that, where you're talking to a large group of people. And it's just, it's very unnerving because you're just kind of aware that you're completely alone in a room talking to a machine. And normally if you're giving a talk, there's some sort of chemistry or, or energy in the audience that you can feed off of, but it's a strange time to make art. But I think it's sort of forcing people to do what it is that they actually want to do in some ways.
0: Tell us, how did you get into writing and illustrating children's books?
1: Well, So I actually got into that by accident. I've always thought of myself as an artist, first and foremost. And all of the early art that I was making was using, I think, words and pictures together to try and tell a story, weave a narrative, an arc, create momentum. And it was only when I was in my last year of art college that one particular concept I thought would be better served in the form of a book rather than a series of individual canvases. And once I started doing that, I remembered all of these picture books that I had enjoyed as a kid and started bringing some of that structure into it and recognized that it was actually a really beautiful platform for storytelling and one that I was quite well suited to. So I made my first book, as an experiment in college, and then thought that after graduating, I would get it published. And really, the, it went from there. When the publisher asked me if if I had more books in me, I, I mean, I lied through my teeth and said, absolutely, I did. But once I really started to apply myself, it turns out that this was quite a natural a natural way for me to see the world and tell stories
0: and, and make art. And yet you still work in fine art too, don't you? You have gallery exhibitions. And you have some upcoming ones, ones called Our Place in Space in Northern Ireland and in Cambridge, April through September. Tell us about that.
1: Well, one of the biggest differences between fine art and picture books is that with picture books, it's much more of a formula process where there's a beginning, a middle and an end. And everything sort of has to be neatly wrapped up in a bow in some ways. Whereas in fine art, that's not the case. You can get away with Asking questions that don't necessarily have answers or sort of suggestings without having to answer them or or have some kind of resolution. But whenever I first started making books, I just thought, well, I'm going to keep making fine art because that was a splinter away from that, a tangent out of that. Uh, And I have been doing both ever since, thinking that, well, I'll just keep doing that until somebody sort of says that you can't do that anymore and nobody ever did, so I've always been making both. But more recently I think the wars have been getting closer and closer together. And case in point, I have a show coming up in Boston that's a show of paintings, which is, you know, much more sort of nebulous and conceptual and open ended and suggestive. And it's called The Night in Bloom. And it's all of these sort of fabulous, very colourful, flamboyant paintings of the night sky, which is exaggerated stars, you know, to make it look like it's it's a floral garden, but always with some kind of anchor to back on Earth as a reminder of just the perspective of our place here in this cosmos. And that's the perspective with which we look through everything. And the Our Place in Space exhibition is very different looking, but not dissimilar in terms of the concept of it and actually is closer to the way in which I would make books. And that is, it's a very large, 10-mile long walking trail sculpture project of the solar system but that is using the solar system as a way to look at the scale of humanity and just the perspective of looking back on Earth from massive distances to sort of just see what it is that we prioritize and what it is that actually absorbs our time and energy.
0: Fabulous. Now, you were born in Australia in 1977, but you grew up a Catholic in Belfast during the Northern Ireland conflict known as the Troubles. How did that conflict impact your family and your childhood? Well,
1: you know, I think actually the way in which it's impacted, it was very hard to tell because I, I would have said that I was a political growing up just because I could see the damage that it was doing. And I just, I wanted to turn away from it, which is why I, as an artist, I had always chose to not paint murals on walls because that was a political manifestation, the visual manifestation of politics here. And it was something I wanted to stay away from. But whenever I was in New York, and trying to explain to people, to Americans, even to British expats, the difference between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland, that they were two actual different countries, and some of the history and the current conflict, it really struck me just how little anybody knew, or really, actually, once you're outside of the six counties that is this statelet, how little anyone cared. And it suddenly just all seemed like this tragic waste of energy that there we are fighting it out, to be, you know, one have to be part of one country, one have to be part of another. And and the reality is that nobody cared. And then whenever I started doing some research and was talking about the Apollo 8 mission around the moon for a sculpture that I had done, I became aware of the overview effect. And I recognized that the language that these astronauts were using to look back on Earth and explaining the, the petty parochial problems was exactly the same way in which I was looking at and using to explain... Northern Irish politics from a distance and then trying to now bring that back and using Northern Ireland as almost an example for everybody else, which is, you know, looking at just what this revenge almost identity politics does when you look from far enough away and just trying to bring some of that perspective in. But I think growing up, one of the things that's always been prevalent in my work is this sense of duality, the ability to simultaneously see two opposing opinions and and points of view.
0: Absolutely. And for me, it it almost sounds like The Troubles are kind of a parable for the problems we have now with climate change.
1: Completely, yeah. And I actually think that Northern Ireland's a very interesting place to look at at the minute because what we see with, even with American politics, where it's, you know, them versus us, the Democrats versus Republicans, it's almost become, I don't know who I am, but I know how I'm not. So therefore, if they think it's right, I think it's wrong. And that kind of vicious, self-protective existence of an enemy All you need to do is look no further than Northern Ireland to see where that goes, where that tit-for-tat revenge kind of, they must be shut out, I must win at all costs, I'd rather be right than be better mentality goes. And it doesn't go very far, that's the sad thing. But you can start to see these battle lines being drawn again, yes, in the climate movement, where it is people would rather be right and get their point across than be better, even if better means their own identity not being lauded or celebrated. And I think that it is a kind of a vicious circle that can ultimately become a big obstacle.
0: Now, you were 21 when the Good Friday Agreement was reached. How did you feel about that at the time?
1: I remember talking to people because I went to one of the very, very few integrated schools, secondary schools, higher education. And what that means is that both Catholics and Protestants go to the same school. And when I was in New York, I had a, an intern who was a, a young African-American woman from Atlanta. Wow. And when I got the letter in saying that you're a patron of the integrated education in Northern Ireland, and she was like, oh, what does that mean? And, you know, I was like, yes, that just means that two groups of white Christians basically go to school together. And it was really embarrassing. This was just like that's how kind of far behind things are here in so many ways that the integrated schools should not be referred to as integrated schools, but rather schools and all non-integrated schools should be referred to as segregated schools. So I was slightly, I suppose, ahead. What was I I was in fifth year when the Good Friday Agreement came in. And so this idea of cross-community conversation and dialogue was not entirely new to me, but I think there was a lot of people felt quite obviously celebratory about it because this sort of absolutely impossible thing that could never happen had happened just through the sheer humble determination of people like John Hume and George Mitchell from the US and and Bill Clinton, you know, shepherding things along. And there was a real sense of celebration. But I also remember people sort of being a bit also personally Confused and struggling with this vacuum was like, well, you know, well, what do I do now? People didn't know what quite to do with it, but it did feel like things were possible. And it's been eggshells really ever since then that there were policies put in place there that really should have been temporary. But that was baked into the agreement that we're still dealing with now, you know, like the power sharing where, Both sides just sort of cancel each other out in some ways because they can. But it felt like this resolution that was impossible but suddenly became possible. So mixed feelings about it across the board. I personally thought it was such a triumph and I've been kind of working with the positivity of that since.
0: This episode is sponsored by Another Tomorrow, a women's fashion brand that redefines luxury with a commitment to ethics, sustainability, and transparency from farm to fabric to atelier. Find Another Tomorrow on its website, anothertomorrow.co, at its flagship boutique, 384 Bleecker Street in New York City, and at select stores. My guest today is Oliver Jeffers, the Northern Irish artist and children's book author, best known for Here We Are, Notes for Living on Planet Earth, published by HarperCollins. The film version of Here We Are is available on Apple TV+. On Earth Day 2020, Oliver Jeffers gave a TED Talk called An Ode to Living on Earth. And I wanted to share a clip from that popular TED Talk, which has some of his illustrations in the background. We'll link to the talk in the show notes so you can check it out for yourself. When you watch the video, you'll not only hear his wise and funny thoughts about planet Earth, but you'll also see the lovely, cheerful pings and zings he drew to accompany them. In the meantime, listeners, you'll just have to dream up your own animations.
1: Hello. I'm sure by the time I get to the end of this sentence, given how I talk, you'll all have figured out that I'm from a place called Planet Earth. Earth is pretty great. It's home to us. And germs. Those f- take a backseat for the time being, because believe it or not, they're not the only thing going on. This planet is also home to cars. Brussels sprouts. Those weird fish things that have their own headlights. Art. Fire. Fire extinguishers. Laws, pigeons, bottles of beer, lemons and light bulbs, Pinot Noir, and paracetamol. Ghosts, mosquitoes, flamingos, flowers, the ukulele, elevators and cats, cat videos, (laughs) the internet, iron beams, buildings and batteries, all ingenuity and bright ideas, all known life, and a whole bunch of other stuff. Pretty much everything we know and ever heard of. It's my favorite place, actually.
0: Did you always know you wanted to be an artist? Were you somebody who was drawing since forever?
1: Yeah, I was, I was. The irony is, like in those early days, I was drawing sometimes because people were like, oh, that's really good. And, you know, for the very short-lived bursts of validation and approval and and praise. But then I also realized in early in primary school that I could use it as a way to get out of doing other classwork by, you know, going to help (laughs) decorate the set in the school play. So I leaned into it somewhat.
0: Your mother was unwell for much of your childhood with multiple sclerosis, correct? That's true. And you said that kept the house full of four what could have been very rowdy boys, a little less rowdy. How did that happen?
1: I think it was, you know, because we were all concerned for her well-being. We all had to help look after her. So there was a sense of baked-in responsibility there with us that we just wanted to be sort of closer to home in case anything happened. And... Her and my dad, both, you know, they were quite forward thinking and, and they encouraged us to travel, to think outside the box, to to be curious. Uh, and so home was a very safe and curious environment, which we're all very, very grateful for. And it was, you know, very emotionally rewarding in so many ways. Um, but we always had a sense of mortality because of mom's illness. But I think, you know, the, particularly the Rowdy, it was just like, we wouldn't want to do that to her. We wouldn't want to just go be absentee and go out and cause trouble or do anything like that. Cause it just would have been unfair. It would have been too much for, for them to bear.
0: And you lost her when you were still quite young. Mm-hmm. How did that inform your work? You know, I
1: think it informed my work in massive ways because right after I finished Hazelwood College, which was the integrated college, I went to the University of Ulster. That's actually Ulster University, they've called it now. And I studied uh, visual communication, thinking that I would stand a much better chance of getting a job than if I did a fine art degree. But then I took a year off in between my third year and my final year and and traveled around and, and ended up in Australia. And I actually only really went back because my mother was getting quite ill. And we were sort of advised to be close that year. So I thought, well, I'll go back and I'll finish my degree. And and then she died halfway through that last year. I was 21 whenever she passed and I was in my final year at our college. And and I think I was at that perfect age where I got the importance of, you know, the, the fragility of life and the I think the, the false economy we place in in peer approval, which was especially notable in the final year of our college where you just want everybody to think you're okay, mixed with being young enough to do something about that and realizing that life is so fragile and so short. And if you don't act the way you want to be, if you don't do what you want to do, nobody's going to do it for you. And what really matters more the work that you want to do, the person you want to be, or the approval of some person that you don't even really know very well. And so that my friend once said that I was handed a, a superpower, almost like a magic step ladder, that I could just look above the periphery and, and the, the noise of it all and, and see things for what they really were. And I think that I've applied that to my work ever since. And it was, I think, the mixture of that year, that gap year, where I got to go and apply some of the education I'd received and the processes that I believe worked into the real world. And... Kind of learned a very important lesson there when coupled with my mother's early demise that in the real world, nobody is going to hold your hand and tell you what to do. And so you only get out what you put in. So that all kind of really came to fruition in that last six months of of my last year where I was able to apply myself, I think in in a kind of a very urgent and energetic way that has set me up for the workflow for the rest of my career since.
0: Writing Here We Are was a departure of sorts for you, wasn't it? Tackling serious topics such as the environment and climate in a children's book. How did that come about?
1: Well, I suppose it's a departure in that it's the first ever book I'd made that was nonfiction. Every other picture book I had made up to that point was completely made up for the pure purposes of just entertaining, or so I thought. Occasionally they would hit on interesting or meaningful morals or values. But with Here We Are, I had a son and it just struck me as how odd it is that two of us went to the hospital and three of us came out and they just let you leave without passing a test or anything like that. And when we get home, we had this person that we were responsible for. And I suppose I started doing what I would do with any new person who came to our apartment, any guest, and I was giving them the tour. And there was something really hilarious about that to me, me walking around explaining things to a small child who clearly didn't understand a word I was saying. But there was something about it that was like, wait a minute, you know, a lot of these things that I'm saying are surprisingly relative. I mean, you break things down to be as simple as absolutely possible. And then I decided, I was writing him a letter about these observations. And at that point, it was 2015, so Brexit had just happened and and the Trump campaign was in full swings. And just really this this kind of vitriolic anger was right on the surface. And it felt like the world was becoming a dark and scary place. and, And I wondered if other people might benefit from some of these Realizations that I was having myself. And so I, I did turn it into a book and I decided to try and make the book so simple that it was impossible to argue with, no matter your politics or, or anything. And that seems to have been the case because I think that ultimately what people really want, no matter what side of a political or religious divide that they fall on, are... are surprisingly similar you know people just want to be loved and they want to matter and they want a safe and healthy environment for their community and often the distortion and the noise that comes into that pits people against each other and so i was pleasantly surprised by that no matter who was reading this book they could get behind it i mean with very very few cases where some people took advantage to the fact that there was a a lesbian couple shown in the people spread when it says you know people come in all different shapes sizes and colors We may all sound different, look different and act differently, but don't be fooled, we're all people. But really that was it. And I just thought there's there's hope here, there's potential here because I think this book is showing that when you get to something at its simple enough core, you find that we all get lost in the noise rather than deeply different ideas of what we actually want. People can very often point out what they don't want, but when you start to get people to point out what they do want, I think you'd be surprised at how similar it often is.
0: That's so true. Now, Here We Are has been embraced by environmentalists. Does that surprise you? What was your mission with it?
1: When I was starting to make the book, I thought there's three main pillars for this book. There's the idea of parenthood, you know, just this notion of being responsible and explaining everything to somebody who knows nothing. Then there was the idea of cosmology which is the sheer perspective on things and you know the overview effect and earth's place inside our solar system inside a cosmos and but the third one was environmental and social responsibility and so th- it doesn't surprise me at all that the book is being picked up by environmentalists because so much of an environmentalism is is the same as a social justice which is just creating systems we live by that can be carried out for an indefinite amount of time at no one's expense.
0: Let's hear an excerpt from that lovely audio version of Here We Are.
1: Here we are. Notes for living on planet Earth. Written, illustrated, and read by Oliver Jeffers. To my son Harland, this book was written in the first two months of your life as I tried to make sense of it all for you. These are the things... I think you need to know. Well, hello. Welcome to this planet. We call it Earth. It is the big globe floating in space on which we live. We're glad you found us as space is very big. There is much to see and do here on Earth, so let's get started
0: with a quick tour. Apple TV Plus adapted Here We Are into a short film with Meryl Streep narrating, and it came out on Earth Day. What was it like to work with Meryl Streep? What did you think about when this all came together?
1: Yeah, unfortunately, I didn't get to meet her. She, the voice talent were filming in totally different cities, I think even different continents. So nobody was actually together in one place. And, and uh, I was in London at the time that Meryl was recording in New York, so I didn't actually get to go along. But, you know, with the weight of Apple behind, you, you can kind of, name anybody and they can probably get them. For the purposes of narrating the character of Mother Earth, Mary was pretty perfect. And she's quite an environmentalist herself. So that was a real coup and added some wit behind the film. But whenever the notion of the film first came around, I thought I was interested and intrigued at how it was going to happen because there's not really a story in the book. The book is a set of observations and really an illustrated letter. But what we were able to do with the help of Studio A.K.A. and Philip Hunt, the director, and there was another writer who was brought in that helps figure out a structure that could be placed on top of that, which is the day in the life of a family. So it does have a narrative flow and an arc. Uh, And I think it came out absolutely brilliantly.
0: It's still streaming on Apple TV Plus too, isn't it?
1: Yeah, yeah. I think they give it a big push every Earth Day. At least they have the last two that it's been around. So um, I hope they continue
0: to do that. Now, last fall, you were at the TED Countdown to COP in Edinburgh, where Mm -hmm. you spoke and we painted a mural together, which was very fun. And then you attended COP26 in Glasgow, and you had a couple of exhibitions there, which I saw some really monumental installations. Can you describe them?
1: Yeah, as you know at COP there was different zones. There was the blue zone, which was for delegates, so that was very difficult to get into. That was not for the public, and that was where all the negotiations were taking place. And
0: that's where we saw Obama speak.
1: Yes, and then there was the green zone, which was the more public-facing zone. Which was uh, there were still talks and all sorts, but there was some exhibitions, and and that was where a lot of schools were going to. And so I I had. a concept that was basically broken down into two parts. And it was originally supposed to be one sculpture, but because of the extra space that was needed to be taken up for COVID social distancing, that didn't happen. But it actually worked out quite well the way that it was. So in the Blue Zone, the idea was that if I could do anything to, I don't know, as these world leaders were going to be walking past this on their way into to negotiations, if I could do anything to sort of knock them off of their own personal ego and agenda, <laughs> but when they were going, and there in through,
0: were a lot of egos and agendas in that blue zone.
1: Yeah, if I could do anything to just even knock that sideways for a second, that might be helpful. And so they were confronted with this spinning earth that was produced with the charm of a well produced school play with some static clouds floating and it's in this box that you could sort of walk around and it's rotating and it just looks like a blank earth but as it rotated into the it's the night side of it a uv light picked out written over and over and over again in all the landmass people live here people live here over and over and over again to show that you know like at this point the two greatest scientific threats to our species are germs and weather and neither of those care about borders or need passports or care about bank balances or checklists. These are global problems that will require global solutions. And then in the green zone, it was called the celestial census results and it was outside the green zone. So anybody could say it so flat like like two lollipops. It was a skill model of the earth and the moon about whatever it was, I think. 150 feet apart and on the moon it said no one lives here and then all the way at the other end on the earth it says all of the people live here and just sort of you know this simple reminder that this is the only place in the entire cosmos that anyone lives.
0: That we know of at least until we people up Mars.
1: (laughs) My dad always joked that the surest sign of intelligent life out there is that they haven't bothered trying to contact us yet.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So what did you think of COP26? I mean, I was comparing it to sort of attending like the Olympics Mm. of environmentalism that, you know, there were just so many people and so many simultaneous events and you wanted to be at everything at the same time. And how did you find it?
1: Well, going in, I didn't know what to expect at all. I'd never been to a COP before. was aware that the Paris Agreement had come out of COP21, I found out since, which is in 2016, and had realized that the COP Conference of Parties is an annual event that happens. This was the 26th one in a row to talk about whatever issues that the UN prioritized in its agenda, and it just so happens at the minute, that that is climate. And the reason that this one was a big one is because after Paris, this was the first five-year milestone to see how we're doing. So I went in thinking that, and I'd been talking to different people. I I got to know Tom Karnak from Global Optimism and Christiana Vigaris. She's wonderful. She is wonderful, from TED. And uh, we had been talking, and and I was like, you know, there seems to be, from an eye perspective, there seems to be an awful lot of expectation on this being a success or not. And they were saying that it's really frustrating because they knew in advance going in that there could be no moment like Paris 16 because there's no moment where we're going to get everybody to agree and it's going to be a thing this is going to be a measuring of how successful we've been doing and at best that that's going to be well we're all kind of on track but we know we're not. So it's gonna be from the outside, it's gonna look like it hasn't been a success. And they were sort of questioning whether it should be happening at all and whether Boris Johnson was just forcing it through for his own ego. That's the way it seemed when I first got there, that there was a lot of frustration. People didn't know why I was there. People didn't know why it was happening. But then as I was there for two weeks and here's really what I took away from it, was that ultimately people were very glad that it happened, even the people who weren't so glad at the start and that it was a success but not for the reasons i think that could be measured by the public because i think that all of the people who were there it's you know it's like the difference between meeting somebody for dinner versus having a Zoom meeting. It's like you just don't quite know what you're going to see or, or miss on a Zoom meeting. So having all those people together, I think people were suddenly becoming aware of all these other problems that were being solved by people in interesting ways. And and so I think getting everybody together who's interested in fixing these problems were really getting something quite out of it. But here was, for me, what the biggest takeaway was towards the end of it and having walked around and gone to some of the marches and through Global Optimism, getting access to some of the the meetings and some of the speeches and seeing some of the delegates at work and then also just being around my sculpture and and talking to anybody who came past as an artist. And, you know, on my badge, I don't think they quite knew what to put. So it was just said that I was an observer. And I thought, you know, that's quite an apt title, I suppose, for for me in general, um, as observing and translating. But I suppose my takeaway was that There were five main groups represented that I could see at COP. And it was, you know, one, the world leaders and the high-up government. Then there was the business leaders. Then there were the delegates and journalists who were sort of trying to just do their jobs. Uh, Like me. Then there were the angry youth outside. Oh,
0: boy, were they too. uh,
1: Yes. But this is and I kept bringing this up time and time again in the last few days as the epiphany of this hit me, I would say in Glasgow there were more people interested in solving climate change during those two weeks than any other place on earth those two weeks. I agree. And I would still say the vast majority of that city did not care. So 5th
0: didn't even know. The
1: fifth group represented at the table was the taxi driver. Every taxi yeah. I had to get into, and you had to take taxis because the roads were all closed and myriad ways to go. Every single taxi driver I talked to, I always asked them.
0: Which, of course, was not the greenest way to get around town. But it
1: was the only way to get around town.
0: The only way to get around town. And, because yeah. all
1: the, the you know like bridges were closed. It was three miles to get 200 feet. But then even talking to the restaurant servers and, and just the general public, people were just like, I, you know, it's a waste of time. And then being followed up on a question, was like, well, what do you think is happening in there? They didn't really know. And then was like, do you think anything is going to happen? No. Why not? And slowly getting more and more about it. And what I realized is that people all want to help. But the biggest group of people at that table a cup were the general public, represented by the tax drivers who just are apathetic right now and that's when it struck me is that this having seen that all you know some of the meetings that I sat in and some of the interviews that I did with interesting people is it seems that everybody agrees on the problem most of the problems have solutions the big problem that we have now is getting everybody behind the solutions and so in some ways it's not a climate problem we face at all but it's a people problem it's a story problem
0: which is why we have The Green Dream. Thank you so much, Oliver Jefferson, for being on The Green Dream. Let's try to get that message out to everyone we can.
1: Yep, we just gotta tell better stories, that is all.
0: That is all. Yep. Thank you so much. Thanks, Denna. New episodes of The Green Dream come out the first and third Tuesday of the month. So we'll be back with a conversation with Australian filmmaker Eva Orner, director of the documentary Burning, the story of the devastating black summer fires, how the fires spiraled out of control, what the world learned from watching Australia burn, and how we have the power to prevent anything like that from ever happening again. The film is now streaming on Amazon. Here's a preview.
2: The point of where we are now with climate change, and this is the positive to give people some hope, and what gives me hope is governments are failing us, but what is leading the way now are communities, local governments and industry and it's kind of surprising how much industry has whether by goodwill or by sheer force and guilt is having to adopt Or or fear of losing their shirts. Right. And so they have to sort of adopt fairly aggressive climate change policies with their companies. And there's so many entrepreneurs doing great work. Mike Cannon-Brooks, who's in the film, who's Australia's Elon Musk, but without the dickery. (laughs) 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 Um, He's a young billionaire, self-made, who puts a lot of money into science and and solving climate change in industry. And he says, you know, it's really up to us to lead the way and ultimately government will have to follow. And I think that's what we're going to see over the next decade.
0: If you're enjoying this conversation, you won't want to miss my sister podcast on the Wondercast Network, If Jewels Could Talk, hosted by Carol Woolton, contributing jewelry editor for British Vogue. In If Jewels Could Talk, Carol explores every facet of jewelry, who makes it, who wears it, and why. It's a must-listen for everyone who loves jewelry or might be buying a piece of jewelry, anyone interested in design and history, and everyone who loves a rollicking real-life story. Follow If Jules Could Talk wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Green Dream was sponsored by the sustainable fashion brand, Another Tomorrow. Written by Dana Thomas. Recorded by Alfie Thompson of Heavy Entertainment. From TalkBox Productions with Executive Producer Tavia Gilbert. Senior Producer Katie Flood. With Mix and Master by Kayla Elrod. Music performed by Eric Brace of Red Beat Records in Nashville, Tennessee. The Green Dream is a production of Wondercast Studio in association with Mortimer House. You can find us online at wondercast.studio or through your smart speaker on Wondercast Radio. I'm Dana Thomas, the European Sustainability Editor for British Vogue. You can read my monthly column, also called The Green Dream, in the magazine or online at vogue.co.uk. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter, where my handle for both is Dana Thomas Paris. Thank you for listening.